Hi, Pastor Adam here. The month is about discernment, specifically discernment about movies and television. The week is about comedy in specific, how we can use comedy to better understand who we are before God, how we can participate in comedy, what it says about us as who we are. So if that's something that you're interested in, then this is the sermon for you. Okay, so thanks for also good morning. Thanks for the streaming audience. Thanks for being here. We are back this morning to continue our investigation into what it means to be discerning of our senses. Uh, specifically, specifically, we've been talking about the necessity of a biblical approach as the kids shuffle out of here. <laughs> the biblical approach for our participation and our indulgence in the visual medias, movies, and television, YouTube, these kinds of things. And we spent the last couple weeks um, finding our footing into what that means, exactly, the, the starting point for what, that, for what that is and why it's important. Our level of commentary of these things, how we can narrow down our interrogation of these things that we uh, excessively, you know, sometimes necessarily so, but that we excessively consume. So if we're going to participate in something as much as movies and television, as we do as a culture, um, then let's at least develop a sort of defense system as we, you know, navigate that world. So that, uh, you know, deviant truths don't creep their way into our into our witness, into our theology, into our relationships, into how it is that we live and operate in the world. So let's have a level of discernment built into our, our minds as we seek to renew them so that when we navigate this world of you know, culture and movies and television, cultural production through these things, um, we're set up for success in that regard. Um, so as I mentioned, uh, I want to spend as I mentioned at the end of, of last week, I want to spend um, just asking questions about specific genres uh, in the interest of a more articulate you know, debriefing of these inputs, um, asking ourselves the questions of why this genre or that genre is, you know, is deemed good or, or entertaining or these kinds of things, why they're useful or beneficial or how they're not useful and beneficial what it says about who God is, what it says about who we are, what it says about our status before him, these types of things. Ultimately, why do these genres um, that you know, we constantly are you know, producing as a culture through movies and television, why do these strike such a chord with us? Things like comedy and horror and romance and, and things of that nature. So today is going to be in regards to comedy. Next week will be horror and I'm going, to try to, I'm going to try to lump them all in there as, much, as best as I can, but hit the main ones. We need to move past, as I said last week, you know, our highbrow critique when we leave the movies, you know, whether it be you know, our living room, or, um, of, you know, I like the bangs and the booms. That's what I was you know, joking about last week. We need to have a, a more articulate debrief of the things that we consume. So, you know, moving past when, in regards to comedy, this was a great movie. It was good for some belly laughs, you know. 
I'm guilty of this as well, you know, leaving my commentary there and not, you know, analyzing it on a deeper level, deeper level, not interrogating it for just the, the wider implications of, of why. You know, why was it so good? Why is that so important that it made me laugh? So, and that, uh, on that note, what's the deal with the genre of comedy? You know, why do we love a good comedy? Why do we resonate with characters who are most often in these, these comedic movies and these comedic shows, they're most often flawed, you know, sometimes very obviously flawed. Why do we choose to laugh at them? You know, what does that tell us about us? Why do we like a good comedy? For starters, as I was beginning this, you know, research into this and, and whatnot, I find myself, I found myself asking the question of like, uh, you know, speaking against like someone like the, the naturalist who wants to say everything is time plus chance, chaotic, you know, nothingness, everything is meaningless, this and that. If that's true, which of course it's not, then why do we pursue things like comedy? You know, you can, you can broaden it even more, you know, you can apply it to just art in general. If, if the whole purpose of living is to dominate and survive, you know, the, the whole argument against that is then why do we pursue the arts? You know, there's no meaningful justification for the, the naturalist position, you know. Same thing is true about just comedy specifically. Like, why do we pursue this idea of finding value in laughter? Like, what is it about that? I found myself asking that question just right off the top. What is it about... What is it about comedy that can be justified or can't be justified? And I don't, I don't think that the naturalist's position has a meaningful response to that. Like, why do we continue to pursue this? Why do I, why do I find value in making you laugh? You know, why do you find value in making me laugh if everything is about self-preservation and domination and survival? There seems to be a disconnect. So from the get-go, interesting to point out. Um, what is it about humor that seems to be transcendent on some level, you know? Asking myself that question. Um, the truth is that humor seems to be sort of irrepre irrepressibly human, you know? Can't escape it, can't get away from it. Even in the most strenuous and darkest of circumstances, we find a way to bring, you know, humor into our situation. Like, if you research, like, during World War II and, like, concentration camps and stuff, the Jews would often, like, bring humor into their situation as a, as a, as a tactic to cope with their severe circumstances, you know? It's interesting. Why is that? Life without humor, I would, you know, posit to you guys, life without humor as a tool to be used would be just sort of dark and pessimistic and, and abundant in despair. Whether we use it as a coping tactic uh, in high-stress high situations and, and environments, you know, or as a, as a projection of our own condition before God. You know, remember last week I talked about analyzing just the nature of man, what, how we can ask this, you know, use this this sort of subcategory as we're interrogating movies, what does it say about the nature of man? But um, how does comedy 
uh, you know, lend some, some clarity to the nature of man. What sort of theological truths and meanings can, uh, can comedy help us to explain as a genre? So just some sort of recapping real quick. In the beginning, you know, we know that man was set up to be in perfect unity before God, to be a certain way, for pleasurable and intimate fellowship with our Creator and a life of unending joy and peace and living exactly as we were meant to be lived. This is true. This, is, this was how Adam was created. This was the position he was in in the garden. It's reasonable to say, I would say to you, it's true that in the beginning there was no lack of fulfillment, uh, no insecurity, no fears about the future, regrets about the past for Adam, nothing lacking in his character. You know, he was made perfect. He was made good. God declared him good. You know, moment by moment, a moment by moment sense of total satisfaction that God created him and declared Adam good, just as he did the rest of creation. No desire unmet, no selfishness, present, present to ruin, you know, how he was created. Uh, any, no sense of um, loss. It just didn't exist. It was, it was perfect. It was how it should have been. Um, but we know that parts of that design included the freedom that God gave Adam to navigate his environment. You know, navigate the world that he was placed in. And so, ironically, and this is going to be the basis of today's message, is analyzing irony, because comedy is centered, revolves wholly around the concept of irony. Ironically, that meant Adam was free to depart from the freedom he had, if this makes sense. Freedom to walk away from joy, from peace, from perfect and complete satisfaction in who God is and in how he was created to be. And when Adam abandoned this freedom, he chose instead a new freedom, which, of course, wasn't freedom at all. But slavery, which puts, put him, which puts us all in a state of, there's a discrepancy, in a state of dissonance. There's something that's not as it should be. Adam chose this freedom and in this created this disparity between himself and God. And recognition of this struggle, slaves who were designed for freedom, results in a healthy dose of irony for us all. Results in dissatisfaction um, that we have in life, and when we, when we recognize it as such. Um, again, it's a, it's a recognition now that we live in that things are not as they should be. We know this to be true in our hearts. Then we get into the whole, you know, we accept that to be true or not, or we suppress it, and then we choose to, you know, pursue pleasures and all these other things. But we recognize in our hearts and the way that we were created and the image that we were created in that things are not that they, not as they should, things are not as they should be. Sorry. <laughs> and then this leads to desire for us all, desire for improvement, um, as well as explaining that, you know, coping with that. We want to be able to recognize and understand why things don't meet our desires and expectations that we once lived in, that Adam once experienced. Um, we want to make things better. And so we find ways to cope and enter 
the genre of comedy. You know, it's one of the ways we cope. You know, participating in this. You know, seeking after this this thing, this this laughter. Uh, it's one of the ways that we cope with the irony that we live in as struggling slaves, because this is the path that man chooses, who were meant to be free and perfect and fully satisfied and in full joy with who God is and who we were designed to be. And it's used to illustrate some fundamental absurdity in our condition as people. You know, this is, this is why we can... This is why we can point something out as absurd when we see it, because on some level, and we'll get into this later, we recognize that it's a total departure of who we're called to be. And when we see this, our tendency is to laugh at it. Why is that? <clears throat> it's levity as a response to the discrepancy in our experience and status as imperfect before God. And recognition that something is wrong and it needs to be made better, or at the very least, pointed out. Like, we can't help but point it out. It's a fundamental factor in, in cultural origins and, and cultural production, as we see in movies. Wrongs need to be made right. The world explained. Ugly, ugliness needs to be made beautiful. And the irony of man's situation then goes one of two ways, suppressed or recognized. And this is, again, this is the basis of today. Irony, comedy working itself out in different ways in light of our fallen before God nature. And irony is central to our experience. Central to our experience um, just as it's central to comedy. It's the difference between what is and what should be. Again, recognition of what is, where we are, versus where we should be. It represents a disconnect from reality or the truth. <clears throat> it always involves irony, always involves a discrepancy of some kind. It takes on different forms, you know, and it takes on different forms in literary fashion and, and, and situational fashion, dramatic situational irony or, or verbal irony, you know. This is not a sentence. This is ironic statement. This makes no sense. You know, it automatically puts us in a state of dissonance. But the point is that it's fundamental in comedy. Irony is fundamental in comedy um, and humor and laughter. And laughter is the, the psychological, the spiritual, the, the physiological response to this discrepancy through this departure from where we're supposed to be before God. And the basic discrepancy is, what I, as I mentioned, that while we were made perfect and complete and, and, and all these things before God, we, we are not there, you know, and we depart from that, and we seek to fill those things with, with fleeting satisfactions. <clears throat> we are devoid of anything that is um, representing any sort of consistent joy, and we look to fill that with other things. And for some of us, this leads us to um, using humor, as I said, to cope, to cope with life and produce some kind of meaning. Um, so sometimes its, its orientation is optimistic, and for us, 
it's optimistic because of Christ. You know, we can, it, it functions as, as comedy in the classic sense, recognizing the discrepancy functions as comedy for us in the classic sense because there's hope to the resolution of our problems, right? We're not, we're not looking to fill something that ultimately can't fill the discrepancy we're in. Christ has done that. So for us, it's an optimistic sort of comedy. But for those people who continue to suppress truth, the truth of who they are, where they are, where they stand before God, the nature of, of who they are, it lends its way toward pessimism, you know, to despair. Where in a, a play like Hamlet, and everyone ends up, you know, killing themselves because they don't have the hope to the resolution of their problems. The, the discrepancies are not answered with anything of meaning. And so for, the, for those of us that know Christ, we're fortunate in that we can, we can place the hope and we can have the optimism in, in the ironic situation we find ourselves in. We can laugh at it because we're moving in a, in a, in a positive direction away from it. It's not born of cynicism, but optimism for the believer. There's resolution and a restored freedom that we gain through Christ and, and getting back to that place where we once were as Adam once was. A byproduct of irony, guys, a byproduct of irony that's all over comedy, the genre, is satire. The use of, the use of humor, the use of exaggeration, the use of ridicule, even, to expose and criticize people's foolishness, their, their hypocrisy, their, their vices, whatever they mean. It's used, satire in comedy is used to well, quite frankly, it's used as a morality judgment. And we'll get into that in just a second. It's deeply embedded in the genre of comedy. And clever as it may be in its different ways to approach and express something satirically, it still ultimately points to the discrepancies that we face, that we live in as fallen people before God. As once perfect and complete people before we deviated from God or before or as we choose to continue to deviate from who we're called to be. And secular writers and comedians and political commentators and, and all these types of people will say, and this is a quote, that though funny, the use of satire only serves to remind us of the sad state of affairs. This is this is an especially like sad realization when there's there's no hope in Christ, you know? Like and so you ask the question to what end? Like is is satire useful then? Is it is it solely meant to point out the sad state of affairs? Like where does that leave you? Where does that lead you? The problem isn't in the affairs though but in who we are, who we are and what we deal with as a culture who wants to suppress truth. The affairs are the result of who we've become. Scripture uses satire in, uh, in many different ways. It uses it to bring attention to certain types of behavior. Remember, satire is a, it's a morality judgment, right? <clears throat> Jonah the whole story of Jonah, really, no specific scripture, is satirical in nature, I would maybe say. You know, it's a good example of 
how he, how not to be a prophet of God, at least in the beginning. Eventually that comes good, and we know that. When he finally goes to where God is, you know, calling him to go speak to the people. Amos, Amos, the prophet Amos in the Old Testament, uses language to call out people's behavior, God's people, calls them cows, things like this. This type of language is all over scripture, Old Testament and New. Paul, you know, sarcastically, you know, refers to the Corinthian believers as, as you know, high and mighty kings, you know, talking about their, um, their arrogance and their, their uh, sort of, their pride. And he uses language to call, call out their behavior. Christ calls the Pharisees blind guides, calls them hypocrites, calls their, their behavior with different satirical, um, th- through different satirical methods. It's used in scripture all over, all over the New Testament, all over the Old Testament, um, harshly. It's used harshly, but satire isn't just used to cut people down and leave them there, you know, sort of lifeless, not moving, <laughs> with no legs, nowhere to go. It's used as a, as a judgment on, on their morality and their, and their position and recognition of who God is. <clears throat> They're not without meaning and purpose. Satire is not without meaning and purpose in Scripture. It, and for believers, it seems to be an outworking of discipline. When Paul says these things in Corinthians, a book like Corinthians, for example, he's calling out behavior, certain things they're doing. He says, I don't write these things to shame you. I write them to admonish you as my beloved children. So he's calling them out. He's using satire. He's using comedy words that on the surface seem funny, you know, but they're funny because of the absurdity of their departure from who they're called to be before God and as a body of believers. And he says, I don't write these things to just cut you down. I write these things to rebuke you, to admonish you, to go back to what you know to be true about who God is and living in that, that truth. And satire can effectively expose people's hearts, you know, their false motives, their, their bad thinking, and their, the, the strongest satire is usually best reserved for, in Scripture, false teachers who need to be publicly exposed, but not for the purpose of just cutting them down. It's for the purpose of preserving truth. You know, it's not, it's not judgmental without, you know, a standard for which to base that. It's, it's for the purpose of preserving truth, exposing a lie. To protect others from the influence of that deviated truth. A BBC article uh, just a couple years ago I found says this sort of sad um, commentary on the use of satire, says, the paradox is this, if satire aims at the moral reform of a given society, it can only be effective within that particular society, and furthermore, if there's a commonly accepted ethical hierarchy to begin with. You follow? Satire only useful if there's a common, commonly accepted truth for which to base the, the judgment satire off of. It can be employed as a tactical weapon. This is still from the article. It can be employed as a tactical weapon aimed at a particular group in society or particular people in relation to a given objectionable practice. But like all tactical weapons, it must be 
very well targeted. And he ends with this. The problem for satire is this, that while we live in a globalized world so far as media is concerned, we don't when it comes to morality, nor I venture to suggest will we ever. So he comes to this realization that what good is satire if we don't share a common idea of truth which to base it off of? What does satire become? It becomes just cutting people down. When you sit down to watch a funny movie, I wonder, have you ever considered that you're about to watch a morality tale? You know, that seems ridiculous at surface to hear, you know, or to think about. But satire is, is judgment. It's a judgment of morality, you know. We find it funny because it is such an absurd departure from what we know to be true. This is why we laugh. This is why I've been beating the drum lately, like the best movies, or not the best, that's bad, that's, that's poor choice of words. The easiest movies, or the easiest songs, as we were talking about last week, are the ones that are so blatantly obvious, you know, their departure from what is true and good and moral, you know, those are the easy ones to discern, because we can recognize it, you know, departure, deviation from truth. But... When you sit down to watch comedies, you know, have you ever thought that you're sitting down to watch a morality tale? The reason it's funny is because blank. And have you ever asked yourself, why? <laughs> like, why do I think that's funny? What is it about the deviation from truth that is actually funny to me? Maybe that's a skill that we can practice as we, you know, are looking to laugh or something. Like, and I'm not up here to say that, you know, avoid comedies, like, as Christians. Like, that's ridiculous. But start to, start to ask yourself, like, well, why is it funny? You know, like, what does that say? What does that say about what I know to be true? What's the, what's the, what's the judgment on, the mora on morality that's being had here? The good versus bad, right versus wrong. <clears throat> Satire is a barometer for that morality. It's judgment. The BBC article ultimately asks, though, to, for, for in what standard, sorry, in what standard, like what does it become if there is no ultimate standard for that? And it seems to be, uh, um, he seems to come to a state of despair in that regard. When there's a lack of a basis, a commonly accepted morality, then, then it's just cutting people down. Without a biblical worldview, the basis for which satire can make sense and be productive, as we see through letters of Paul, through teachings of Christ, it becomes nothing more than pointing out an obvious truth that we do live in a sad state. You know, we do live in a sad state. One with no forward momentum because of what the guy in the article says. No commonly accepted truth. No shared basis. God, God's word provides us with the backdrop of what we're actually called to. It helps us to see what we are not. You know, it helps us to see man's folly. It helps us to see the irony of our situation before God. And it should invite us to laugh because we thought we were right. Though we thought we were right, we were so far off base, you know. We were so far off base. Do you guys ever have moments where, like, you're hanging out with friends and you're, like, reflecting on 
your past experiences, you know, how you handled it, how you viewed things, you know, how you interacted with this situation, and you laugh at yourself because you are so off base of how you should have been, you know? You guys ever have moments like that? Satire helps us in that regard. It helps us to, it helps hold us accountable to the standard of God's truth, to his word. The comedic spirit. The comedic spirit is, you know, richly universal. You know, everyone engages with it, more or less. I don't think I've ever known anyone that doesn't like to laugh, although it's a funny sort of character to think about. But to what end are we engaging in, you know, the pursuit of laughter? Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, um, he mentions laughter like more than anyone in the Bible. And he says, um, he asks himself an important question on the subject of laughter for pure pleasure. He says, I said to myself, come on, let's try, and Ecclesiastes 2, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that this too was meaningless. So I said, laughter is silly. What good does it do to seek pleasure? In other words, what does it do for you other than provide enjoyment that doesn't last when it's, when it's disconnected from God? And later in the same book, he says of, of laughter in comparison, he says sorrow is better than laughter, for sadness has a refining influence on us. And so where does that leave us in regards to it, to comedy, to laughter? It doesn't mean that laughter is valueless, you know, that there's no good in it, that it has no value, but that laughter, along with everything, should be taken and understood and practiced with a level of discernment. And it has to be placed on a sort of value trajectory where sorrow, as he says, has more value because it helps the repentant heart. Its value, laughter's value, only becomes truly functional for those who first experience sorrow so that they can move in a positive direction. Sorrow for their fallen nature before God. Solo, sorrow, solo, sorrow for who they are and where they're actually supposed to be. Sorrow for people who've recognized the discrepancy, their ironic just nature of life before the Creator. And those, time, those, those people, oftentimes, who have experienced like great sorrow and suffering respond more strongly to laughter. Those who have sorrowed to repentance and turned to God are the ones who ex can experience full joy for those exact reasons I said. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, I'm glad I sent it, talking about the letters he sent, the rebukes he sends to the believers. I'm glad I sent it, not because it hurt you, but because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have. So you weren't harmed in this way. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience, God wants us to experience, leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no great, there's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. So we place these things on a, on a, on a value trajectory, and compared to something like sorrow, laughter needs to be 
you know, appropriately positioned. <clears throat> like all things good and useful, we have to be in moderation when we, you know, are, are indulging in laughter, in comedy. There's a certain amount of moderation and discretion involved. And laughter is no different. The author from uh, this book that I've been reading says, if you approach everything with nothing but laughter, meaning that your whole life is built around the pursuit of laughter, as Solomon is pointing out, um, the whole, uh, if humor is the center of your approach to the world rather than being oriented around Christ, around his word, then your natural tendency of sinful self-righteousness will quickly degrade your sense of humor into a sense of cynicism, which is the malignant twin of benign and edifying comedy. And Proverbs 17 says, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones, and cynicism is that broken spirit. It destroys the object of cynicism and instead destroys the person themselves, whose whole his, whose whole uh, life is oriented around the pursuit of laughter to explain things, rather than a recognition of what's true in terms of who they are. The great sort of, the great sort of irony in comedic art is that the central, the central truth that is at first suppressed but later returns, as I mentioned in I think week one, you know, things that bubble back up. You can't actually fully suppress it. It bubbles up is the very reason behind our state of irony, the state of discrepancy, that things are not as they should be. It's the fall of man. The only valid explanation for who, for what, for why we are, is the explanation, is the one explanation that is most universally denied by people. And that is that we are fallen before our God in need of salvation from that. The narrative of the fall of man into sinful rebellion resulting in misery and dissatisfaction and hatred, all the things that we were not supposed to be and not created as when we were first created. It's the reason why after devising and justifying the means to destroy ourselves utterly, we're compelled to make trivial movies about it, whether it be a simple, you know, character, silly movie about, about people, you know, some sort of meaningless plot just about people, or where it's maybe a more elaborate plot, you know, we, we trivialize it. We trivialize it and laugh at it rather than take it seriously because we haven't recognized it for what it is. It's no wonder why comedians, I don't know if you guys know this, comedians historically are depressed people, you know, and we see this pop up occasionally when we see in the news that one of them has chosen to take their life or something, because comedians are cynics. They're cynical about life. They haven't recognized what's true, you know. They recognize a disparity, but they don't know where to place it, and so all they do is just hone in on it. They choose to, to laugh at it, but toward what end? It's a crushing cynicism for these type of people. Only inside the context of who we are, what God wants for us, in the once perfect, you know, newly restored relationship, can we appreciate comedy for the irony that presents. 
can we then use it to, like when we're hanging out with our friends, reflect back on because it holds us accountable to who we are supposed to be, who we're called to be. The recognition and the need to return to the state and relational status we're meant for in the Creator where we laughing at? What is it about this character, how this character is acting? What's funny about it? Like, what are we laughing at? Again, I'm not trying to be, you know, trust me, I like a good funny movie, but ask yourself, like, on a deeper level, like, what's funny? What does this say about the deviance of man? Like, how can this ground us in what's true? Why do I ultimately find this funny? You know, kids are good for that. Sometimes they'll ask you, why are you laughing at that? And then you have to explain why you're laughing at that. And then you have to ask yourself, well, is it good to laugh at that? Like, should I be laughing at that? How can I articulate that to my kid who's trying to learn about the world, <laughs> about who they are? Why do I ultimately find this funny? What does it say about us? <clears throat> are you laughing because you recognize the absurdity about the stories, the characters, the situations? and how that applies to who we are before God, or are you just laughing with you know, your mind off? Remember, we don't do this. Where's your conscious mind when you watch comedic things, movies and TV? Does your laughter, is your laughter relegated to celebrating some sort of sin? You know, celebrating the deviance of man and the deviance before God. Do you relegate it to that? And lastly, how can you use laughter as a tool for reflection and for sanctification rather than purely a pursuit of pleasure? You know, next time you go watch a funny movie, how can you use that funny movie to grow yourself spiritually? You know, renew your mind. Ask yourselves these deeper questions. Funny movies are good. Funny movies have a purpose, though, too. You know, satire, irony, these are judgments on morality. What's being said about man? What does the Bible say about that? And then go from there. So that's a springboard for discussion for you guys this week in regards to comedy. Hope your cell group discussions are good. Let's go discuss.